Well, I tell you, I feel such an anticipation as we get ready to go through Hey Jude. Now, I'm going to admit to you, clearly I stole the title. I did it for a reason, recognition, and I knew it would ring a bell. There's people, you know, you can announce something 20 times in church, and they glaze over. But I noticed when I said, hey, Jude, they were all there. Did he just say, hey, Jude? So we're going to go through the smallest letter in the New Testament tonight, and that is Jude. Before we do, I want to uh, shamelessly plug a a couple of things again. One of them the prayer class starting at 9 o'clock Sunday morning in room 210 upstairs. Um, We are focusing, we are putting much effort into developing an intercessory prayer army. I'll call it army, team, whatever you want to call it, a prayer force that will really bring it down, pray down the power bind the devil, uh, advance the kingdom of God, set people free, uh, healing, deliverance, uh, the supernatural. Amen? The supernatural. When God moves, it's always supernatural because he only does wondrous things, supernatural things. So uh, if you consider, now we've already got, how many intercessors? Well, she told me, 80-something. 80 people have said, I'm called intercession. Amen. And so we're serious about it. We're going to be cultivating and developing and raising this up. We started uh, a Tuesday morning prayer meeting with Aaron leading it uh, at 630 to 730 Tuesday mornings. They had 15 or 16 people first time Tuesday morning. And uh, that's a good start. But uh, We're believing God for a supernatural year, and that will never happen without heavy prayer. And and how many of you, seriously, if I could could wave a wand and and, and just say, when I wave this wand, you're going to receive a much stronger prayer life. How many of you would say, wave it my way? Seriously, really? I I mean, isn't that true? We all want it, but sometimes it's such a struggle to pray. But when we have a whole church focusing on it. It's going to make it easier when you know we're in this together. Amen? Amen. And the life group training. Life groups are the core of our church. Life groups are what make our church, turn our church from a congregation into a family. We don't want to just be a congregation. We want to be a family. Life groups do that. And and we're believing God that this year we're going to double our life groups. We're going to double them. Well, we got to put people through training. And I'm ask, all I'm asking you to do is pray. Lord, do you want me to have anything to do with life group ministry? It was in a home meeting where God touched me mightily and where I first experienced my call to preach and teach. It was in a home meeting. God moves in homes. Some of you need God to move in your home. You might just become a life group leader just to get God moving in your home. But anyway, pray about it, and, and, and if you have any nudge at all from God, go to the class. It's not too late to plug into the class this week, this Sunday, so uh, check into it, come and, and go through it, and, and tell you, it's, it's great teaching. It's, uh, it's all biblical, as is everything that we do, or we try for anything we touch to be biblically based. Amen? All right. Everybody say, hey, Jude. Well, let's pray together, and then we're going to get into this powerful letter. Lord, we just thank you tonight for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you, Lord, for being with us. We thank you, Lord, that the teacher of the church is not a man, but it's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses men and women, but the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes and opens our ears and gives understanding to our heart. We have an anointing. We have an unction. And, Lord, I pray that that anointing and that unction would would uh, minister this word to us tonight, help us to receive it into fertile ground, that it brings forth much fruit. Now, will you pray with me, church, and say, Lord, change me tonight. Give me wisdom, knowledge, understanding to grasp what you intended me to grasp from this letter in Jesus' name.
Amen. We'll turn to your neighbor and say, hey, Jude. <laughs> I thought about playing the song when I started, but I said, no, 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 that would sully it. That would sully it. Well, this thing is higher than normal. So good to have all of you here tonight. Um, yeah, can we, just a little bit, it needs to be lowered. I don't know who did it last. They must have been standing, not sitting. There we go. That's good, right there. There, hello class. All right. I want to give you a little bit of history of the book. And I say book, we shouldn't call it a book, because it's not a book, it's a letter. Jude was written to counter apostasy. If you read your New Testament, particularly the epistles, and you read the warnings of Jesus, particularly when he was talking about what was coming in the last days, what to watch out for, Jesus said, beware of false prophets, beware of false Christs, and this was an answer to the question, what will be the sign of the end of the age? He said, beware of deceivers. In the last times, according to Jesus, there would be an explosion of false teachers, false teaching, false Christ, false prophets, you name it, falsehood would be everywhere. And many of the epistles were written to counter apostasy, many of them. And so we see that even in the first century, all the way back 21 centuries ago, right off the bat, false teachers, false prophets, and false Christ were invading the church. Now, Jude saw this happening and so he penned this little letter to counter apostasy. Now, when I say apostasy, here's what I mean. The abandonment of the faith. It is not backsliding. Backsliders get caught up in some kind of sin. They walk away. They get out from under the lordship of Christ. And they, they start walking somehow, somewhere in the flesh. And, and they get out of the will of God. That's a backslider. This is not back, apostasy is not backsliding. Apostasy is when you say, I no longer believe in him. I no longer embrace him. I think it's all a bunch of hooey. I'm out of this. I renounce it. That's apostasy. Now, in the time of Jude, the specter of apostasy had already raised its ugly head in the church. False teachers were everywhere. And one of the most damning teachings of all was called Gnosticism. Now, this matters, so don't glaze over on me. Let me tell you a little bit about Gnosticism, because this was the boogaboo back then. And there are other versions of it now. Gnosticism was a teaching based on the idea of gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S, that's a Greek word. Gnosis. And gnosis is a Greek word meaning secret knowledge. Anytime anybody tells you they got secret knowledge, your antenna need to go up. There's nothing secret about the Bible. Amen? But Gnosis meant secret knowledge. So Gnostics, those that were involved in the false teaching of Gnosticism, taught several things that they claimed were what was secret knowledge. You had to become a Gnostic to get the knowledge. Let me tell you some of the things they taught, and you'll understand why the alarm bells were going off in Jude and the other apostles. Gnosticism taught that salvation was attained, not by the shed blood of Jesus, but by this secret knowledge you could only attain by joining the Gnostics. So right there, it undermined the blood of Jesus. Gnostics had a weird belief. They believed that matter, whether it was the physical universe or the human body, was evil. If it was physical, if it was material, if it was comprised of molecules and atoms, it was evil. Only spiritual things were not evil. And that gives you a great big problem right there because God created all things that are matter. So it refuted what the Bible says God created. They also held that God did not create the material universe. There you go. But it was instead created by an evil or lesser God. So there goes the creator God who gave his only begotten son. Gnostics considered themselves Christians. What about that? They believed all this, but they said we're Christians. And they saw Jesus as a heavenly messenger. But watch this. They rejected the idea of God 
becoming incarnate, God becoming a man, dying and rising bodily. So they denied the immaculate conception. They denied the resurrection. What's left of Christianity, yet they said they were Christians? Clearly what they believed was heretical, terribly false. But guess what? By the time of the second century, Gnosticism was everywhere in the civilized world. And worse than that, it had penetrated parts of the church, and it was making strong headway. It was galloping. It was gaining steam. Now, we can all see as I go over this that such teachings as Gnosticism, when accepted, destroyed the foundations of Christianity. There's no more Christianity if you believe what the Gnostics taught. What's left of Christianity? You take the blood out, Christ out, the Immaculate Conception out, the resurrection out, there's nothing left. It's gutted. But false teachings like this were red hot on Jude's mind when he wrote this little letter, the smallest letter of all the epistles. Now, as for the little letter of Jude, many feel that Jude's letter is meant to be the precursor to the book of Revelation. It sounds so much like the book of Revelation. So it's placed right before it. When you read Jude, that's right before Revelation. It's the book before, the letter before Revelation. In Jude and in the Revelation, we find the believer, that's us, standing on the brink of end times judgments. The rapture is near, the darkness is deepening, and the signs of the times are rapidly unfolding. Are we there? Yeah, we're there. I believe we're there. I don't just believe it because I feel it. I believe it because I can see it in the word. We're there. But Jude is going to focus on only one sign of the end times that Jesus gave and many others. And that is apostasy. That there would be a departure from the faith. That there would be a large... Now, folks, hear me tonight. He's not just talking about a few people off in a corner walking away from the faith. Jesus predicted... And Jude is addressing and telling us also, prophetically, that in the end times there's going to be a huge apostasy, a large apostasy, a great walking away from the faith. Now, it's not easy to see or to miss that that's happening. We're watching whole denominations that used to be pillars and grounds of the truth, that used to teach the Bible that used to be the ones you went to if you had theological questions, that used to stand up and preach Jesus and preach the blood and preach the resurrection. And, and, and when they did Easter, they did Easter right. They were celebrating the resurrection, not, not something else. Uh, they used to be that way. But now we've seen whole entire Western denominations, not just one church, the whole denomination, throw the Bible out. They don't teach the blood anymore. They have embraced sexual perversion as normal. They have, you could listen to them for five years and never hear the word sin. They don't teach scriptures anymore. And when you approach them about that, they're, they're, they're good with telling you, no, we really don't go that way. We're more into good works and we're more into social justice and, and these d- various different things. We're not really into preaching the gospel anymore, telling people they need to repent anymore preaching the one-wayness of Jesus anymore. That's just not what we do anymore. And so there have been splits where many, many, many Christians have fled these former grounds and pillars of the truth, these denominations, but they're still there. I could name names, but that's not what I want to do tonight, but I could name denominational names. How often do you hear the real gospel anymore? How often do you hear the word repent anymore? How often do you see somebody on Christian TV get up and just teach the Bible without putting a weird twist on it? How often do we hear good old, good old messages, repent and be saved or you're going to, to hell? When was the last time you heard that? It used to be what you heard every Sunday. Apostasy. Is everybody with me tonight? An apostasy. It's when you throw the Bible out, throw the Christ of the Bible out, throw the God of the Bible out, and you go to your own way. Now, there's no question 
that Jude was alarmed over the success and scope of apostasy in his day. And I have to tell you, I'm alarmed over it in our day. If you hang around here very long, you're going to hear me all the time defending the faith, which we're about to talk about in just a moment. And so he wrote with intense earnestness as the Spirit of God moved him to warn of these false teachers. Now, uh, let me just give you a few things that we're going to find in the book of Jude. His letter is going to cover the following. Verse 5, subtle imitation. And you'll see what these things are as we go along. We're going to be three weeks in Jude. So if you miss one, you're going to miss a lot. Subtle imitation, verse 5. Satanic invasion, verse 6. Sexual perversion, verse 7. Social upheaval, verses 8 through 10. Spiritual distortion, verse 11, first half of that verse. Semitic or Jewish persecution, second part of 11. Self-expression, and I'm talking about a a wrong kind of self-expression, in the last part of verse 11. He's going to address strong delusion in verses 12 through 13. Secular humanism in verses 14 through 15. And subversive criticism of the things of God in verse 16. Now that's a little bit of a quick paintbrush, quick sweep of of the letter. Now, we don't know exactly who Jude's target audience was, like we do Peter and James. Remember James said to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, and he told you who he was writing to? Jude doesn't do that. We don't know who his target audience was, but we know who it is. It's the entire church for all time. It's us today. Because the Holy Ghost knew we would need the book of Jude, the letter of Jude. Got to get out of this book thing. It's a letter. All right. So let's begin our journey through Jude. Read it with me, everybody. Verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, Jude is without question the Jude who is mentioned in the Gospels in verses like Matthew 13, verse 55, which reads, they were looking at Jesus and all that he was doing And his miracles, and they said, is this not the carpenter's son? What's up with this? He's healing the sick, raising the dead. All these people are following him. They were blown away. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers? Now pay attention to this. His brothers, he names four. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, that's not Jude. It's Judas. But you know what? Following the infamy of Judas, the Lord's betrayer, it's possible that the author of the letter decided Jude might be a better name. So he shortened from Judas to Jude, like Jeffrey to Jeff, Jonathan to John, Judas to Jude. All right? So he's a a half-brother of Jesus. Think about this. Can you imagine being one of those, a half-brother of Jesus, waking up every day with the Son of God in the next room? Okay? Okay. So the author of Jude was the Lord's half-brother. He's mentioned last in every listing that lists the four brothers, which likely points to his being the youngest of the four half-brothers of Jesus. Jude was almost certainly a married man, as 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5 implies, where Paul says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? So the half-brothers of the Lord are named here, and the assumption is they all were married. So Jude was married. It's a powerful thing to me to note that Jude refers to himself as the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was his bro growing up. Jesus was his brother. But now he's calling him the Lord Jesus Christ without making any reference to being Jesus' half-brother. Jesus had become infinitely more than that to him by now. Amen. 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 So he's not, he's not my brother anymore, not my half-brother anymore. He, he's, he's the son of the living God, and I'm his servant. And to me, that's one of the greatest testimonies of the reality of Jesus Christ in the whole Bible, that his own flesh and blood, brothers and sisters and mother, called him Lord. Yeah. Guarantee it would take me ten lifetimes to get my sisters one time to call me Lord. 
And if they're watching, they're amening me in their living room, I know. <laughs> if you'll recall, there was a day when Jude, along with his other brothers and sisters, and Mary, Mother Mary herself, had stood outside a place where Jesus was teaching. And they said, tell him that his family's out here, and we want to talk to him, because they thought he'd lost his mind. Now keep this in mind. They thought, Jude was one of them, thought at this time, before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, they thought he'd lost his mind. So they were going where he was teaching to call him outside, and I guess talk him into going home with them to get some help. And Jesus responded to their request by this. He said, who is my mother? Who are my brethren? For whoever does the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. You know, I love all of you. I have flesh and blood sisters. I have no brother, but I have three little sisters, a mother, and of course, dad. He's with the Lord now. But I'm going to tell you truthfully, there is a closeness with God's people that you don't have with flesh and blood. There is. There is a connection. It's strong. There, there, is, a, there is a quality. There's something. Well, we're, we're blood brothers and sisters. We're, we're in the same divine family of God. And, and that's a more real, enduring family than any earthly family. I love my sisters. And I'm really in trouble now. I've talked about them, and now I'm saying I don't love them as much. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's different. It's different. Have you ever noticed that? It's different. I feel kinship. I feel connection to God's people because of the blood, because of the Holy Ghost in all of us. Now, he next says three crucially important things about our salvation. He says in the second half of verse 1, to those who are, I want you to say this with me, called sanctified by God the Father. Well, let's just read it together. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, those are three wonderful, powerful words about our salvation. Called means invited, summoned by God to an office, like as a pastor in the church, or to salvation. We were summoned. How many of you can say, I didn't summon him, he summoned me? Come on. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. So we can't go out and say, last night I found the Lord. No, the truth is, last night the Lord found you. You finally woke up. Now, the second word, he said, sanctified by God the Father. It's God's work in us to sanctify us. Sanctified means to be set apart or separated from the evils of the world for a special purpose. We have been separated. And, And church, hear me tonight. Every day, for the rest of your life and my life, one of God's works in us is daily to separate us from the sin and the stain and, uh, and the fleshliness and the darkness of this world and call us unto himself for a special purpose, that we would show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, all right? So he calls us out to call us in. He separates us from that he might separate us to. But now, he says, and preserved in Jesus Christ. And that means to be spiritually guarded and kept intact. Jesus is guarding over you in ways you will never know. I think one of the biggest shocks we're all going to have in heaven when we get there is we're going to realize how many times an angel is sent to protect us, guard us, keep us, watch over us. When danger was near and we didn't even know it, God guarded us. Now, this last word, preserved, I want to spend a little more time with it because it's so powerful. Jude says we're preserved in Jesus Christ. Everybody say again, preserved. Now, Now, he says, in Jesus Christ, we're preserved. Now, the phrase in Christ is one of the greatest truths of the New Testament. For instance, we're told in Romans 8, 1, one of my favorite verses, there is therefore, there's therefore now no more condemnation to the, them which are what? In Christ Jesus. 
So to be in Christ is to be free of condemnation. Then in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, If any man be where in Christ, he's what? A new creature. You cannot be a new creature until you are in Christ. So there's that phrase again. In Christ is one of Paul's favorite phrases. He uses it over and over and over again. All of the blessings of salvation become ours the moment we are, say it with me, in Christ. Can we just say together, I'm in Christ? Isn't that a good feeling? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, it is because of him, that is God, that you are in Christ Jesus. And look what happens for the person who's in Christ. He has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and holiness and redemption. Look at the overflow of being in Christ. We have his wisdom. We have his righteousness. We have his holiness. And we have his redemption. Can we give the Lord a hand of thanksgiving tonight? Amen, amen. So notice that everything changes for us the very moment we place our faith where? In Christ. To place your faith in Christ is to be placed immediately into Christ and into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. The minute you got saved, you were placed into Christ and Christ placed you into the body of Christ. So now we are family. Amen? We're not a congregation We're a family. We are a spiritual house that is called to show forth the praises of God. Now, there is one major difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament in light of this phrase, in Christ, that I want to bring out. And that is, in the Old Testament, you had to be in a place. If you wanted to be blessed, the place of blessing was the land of Canaan. You had to be in a physical place. Where did God call Abraham? He called him to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go where? To the promised land. They crossed the wilderness after being delivered from Egypt. And what was their destination? The promised land. It was a place. But in the New Testament, we have to be in a person, not a place, but in a person, the Lord Jesus. In the Old Testament, they were called to be in Canaan. In the New Testament, we're called to be in Christ. In Christ is the place of blessing. In Christ is deliverance. In Christ is healing. In Christ is wisdom. In Christ is safety. In Christ is redemption. In Christ is heaven. In Christ is the Holy Ghost. In Christ is the wisdom of God. In Christ. I really think the perfect picture of what it means to be in Christ is Noah's Ark. Oh, God knew what he was doing. He gave us such a type when he did Noah's Ark. When he called Noah to build that ark, he gave us a type, a type and a shadow of what was to come. Because when Noah and his family got into the ark, look at this, they were preserved from God's wrath. As soon as they were in the ark, it says God shut the door and the rain of God's judgment began to fall. But watch this, it didn't hit them. It hit the ark. Do you see the illustration here? the, The rain didn't fall on Noah and his family. Because they went to the one place and the only place you could go to be delivered from judgment. And that was the ark. The ark is a type of Christ. Christ is the ark of the new covenant. Okay? So they they got in the ark. The door was shut by God so Noah didn't have to carry the guilt of shutting it. And the rain began to fall. And the whole world came under judgment but those who were in the ark. And the rain didn't touch them. Likewise, when Jesus hung on the cross... The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. But when you get in Christ, the wrath falls on him, the ark, and not on you. That just gave me Holy Ghost bumps, and I'm the one teaching. Amen? It's good stuff. Think about it. Now, the Bible says that every day the wrath of God is falling on the children of disobedience. Every day, God's wrath is falling on people that don't know Jesus. They don't know that his wrath is falling. Romans 1 and Romans 2 tells us the wrath of God is every day falling on the children of disobedience. But it's not falling on you. And it's not falling on me. If you're in Christ, 
Jesus took it. If you're not in Christ, it's falling on you. Now, next, Jude blesses us with one of the Bible's favorite trilogy of words. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Can we just say mercy, peace, and love? Now, I love the way the Holy Ghost moved on them to write because not only is that a great blessing, I'll take mercy, I'll take peace, and I'll sure take love, but it's in the order in which they occur. Because first, we receive the mercy of God. And mercy is the upward look. Okay? We look up and we say, Jesus, I believe in you that you died for me and rose from the dead. And and as soon as we say that, we receive mercy. But then the result of mercy is peace. Peace is the inward look. As soon as we receive his mercy, peace follows. We we make peace with God, and we receive then the peace of God. And once we receive the peace of God, we experience the love of God. So these are in divine order. Love is the outward look. God's mercy precedes his peace, and his peace precedes his love. And that's the way it happened with every one of us. I said in jail as a 16-year-old, Jesus, forgive me. And I got mercy. And when I got mercy, suddenly there was peace. And when I had made peace with God, all of a sudden I was aware of the love of God. Mercy, peace, love. Now, these first two verses are like fresh water before burning fire. Because now Jude's about to let loose. Those verses declare, the following verses, the next ones, are a declaration of war against apostasy and false teachers. Starting in verse 3, we're presented with a mighty clash between good and evil and right and wrong. We sense the desperate plea of Jude to take a stand against godless, false, destructive, and erroneous teaching. I want you to say with me, false teaching matters. Oh, yes, it does. It matters. Because if you fall prey to false teaching, it's going to have an effect on you. It can ruin your faith, ruin your walk, ruin your soul, ruin your marriage, ruin your home, ruin your mind, and ruin your life. False teaching. Jude, therefore, is unafraid of the repercussions from his powerful confrontational letter. He knows that some who sided with the false teachers would be genuinely deceived and they would need a jolt of truth to bring them to their senses. So he loves them enough to tell them the truth. And that's what truth will do, or love will do. Love will always tell the truth. Love will tell the truth. In love, but it will tell the truth. Now, first he addresses himself to the genuine believers in the church who he calls beloved. Then he informs them that when he first sat down to write, it was going to be about the common salvation. Now catch this. He said, he's letting them know how this letter went down. He's telling them, when I first sat down to write this letter, I was going to write about something totally different. I was going to write about the common salvation, our common salvation. So he was going to tell them some good things about the faith. He was going to tell them some encouraging things and edifying things. And he was going to expound upon our salvation. But then the Holy Ghost got a hold of him and switched him up right at the beginning. He says, I was going to talk to you about the common salvation, the common salvation. But then the second half of verse three, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He said, a great burden came upon me. Uh, uh, The love of Christ constrained me. He changed me in midstream. I was going to write about one thing, but he changed me up. And I knew that I was supposed to write about this to warn you to fight for the faith once delivered to the saints and don't let false teachers have their day. The faith, notice what he calls our faith. He calls it the faith, not just any faith. He calls it the faith. He's got the article in front of it. The faith, not just any faith or a faith, but the faith. There's only one, hello, there's only one that'll get you into heaven. There's only one faith that'll get you saved. There's only one faith that'll wash your sins away. There's only one faith that'll get the Holy Ghost inside of you, change your wicked nature, and carry you into heaven the day you die. And that is the faith. The faith. 
I found it necessary to write to you concerning uh, or exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, based on some things he'd personally observed and heard, he clearly had gotten burdened. The true believers here are called to battle. The phrase earnestly contend is very strong. Let me give you some translations. The Living Bible puts it, stoutly defend the truth. The New Living Version, fight hard for the faith. The Message puts it, fight with everything you have in you. The Amplified, fight strenuously. Do you get the idea that he's feeling this as strongly as you can feel anything? We're to fight. Contrary to what some people believe about Christianity, that it's supposed to make you nice. If you're a good Christian, you're a nice Christian. Nowhere in the Bible am I told to be nice. I'm told to walk in love. But I'm not told to be nice. Nice is icky, gooey, weak, spineless. No count. Jellyfish. Nice is bad. Just, just go to the restaurant tonight and tell them I said that. Nice is bad. See, you get saved, people expect you to be nice. I'm not going to be nice. I, I'm going to be truthful. I'm going to walk in love. But I'm going to tell you, Jesus wasn't nice. He wasn't very nice when he put together that whip of cat of nine tails and whipped them out of the temple. He wasn't saying, it's a nice day in the neighborhood. Here you go. He whipped them out. I don't find nice in, in this uh, earnestly contend. Fight hard. Fight with everything you have in you. Fight strenuously. I don't find nice in that. Clearly, Jude is calling for a down-to-the-mat fight for the faith. Can I have an amen tonight? Are y'all with me tonight? Are you aware that the faith is under attack in our day like never before? The word contend means to contend about an issue as a combatant. The word earnestly is added to relay the intensity of the fight. Now, included in the faith, when we say the faith, the faith, the faith, what are we talking about? It means we're to fight for the complete truth of the New Testament. Hear me on this one. Our New Testament's under attack. We're in a culture that is rabidly attacking our Bible. Are you aware of that? Attacking it, writing books against it. People rising up in in the so-called church, so-called Christians, writing books that teach flat against traditional, classic, biblical orthodoxy, ripping it down, tearing it apart, trying trying to rename things and rephrase things and change what it says. Jude is burdened about this. And he, he, he said, I want you, since this was given to us once for all, nothing needs to be added to it, nothing needs to be subtracted from it. We have the complete body of truth, the truth of the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the truth that all the apostles taught, the truth that all the gospels tell, the truth of God's plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation, that it all comprises the faith. I am amazed at how easily Christians are caving and, and throwing in the towel and agreeing with all kinds of nutty, crazy, wrong, heretical stuff just to avoid a fight. But I'm told in my Bible, fight for it. I'm told to fight for it. I'm told to get into the ring. It's my fight. If it comes against my faith, it's my fight. If it comes against my Bible, it's my fight. If it comes against what my Savior, it's my fight. I should preach this on Sunday. You know? Now, Jude goes ahead and he tells us the tactics of the false teachers. He's going to describe their tactics. Now, he's going to get down and dirty and tell us exactly how they operate. Their modus operandi. He says, first, their approach is stealth. They come in under the radar. False teachers and false doctrine. 
For certain men have crept in. That gives me the creeps right there, crept in. Creeps creep. Right? <laughs> For certain men, notice how he describes it, crept in. I, you know, when I hear that, when I read that, I, I picture a cockroach on the floor or a spider on the wall. Creeping. But that's how they get in. It crept means to slip in secretly. Creeps creep in. That's what Jude is saying. They creep in. Stealth-like. They don't want you to know what they really believe. And the word creep, to describe their method of infiltration, is anything but new to New Testament teaching. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Paul talked about how false believers, false believers, had infiltrated our ranks. I'm quoting Paul. To spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So he says they infiltrate. They come in as believers, but they're false believers. They're pseudo-believers. They're false. Then Peter came along and warned about men who would secretly, that's the same idea, introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So there it is. They, they creep. They're secret. They come in under the radar. They don't want you to know what they believe until they're in there. They don't come in through the front door. They openly announce or they, 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 they don't openly announce their true beliefs. They don't want you to know where they really stand. They're very, very good at using Christian vocabulary, but if you listen very closely, and I've learned to do that, they're masters at redefining the terms. Their teachings contain truth mixed with heresy to help it go down easier. See, any good false teaching, folks, hear me, any good false teaching is usually about 90% true. And they use the 90% true to slip in the 10% false. Their aim is to be accepted into the fold, these false teachers. And when I talk about the fold and I'm talking about these things, this means us. This means the Western church, the American church, the English church, the church around the world. It means any place, meeting that calls itself the church of Jesus Christ. This is the way false teachers get in. And of course, in Peter's day and, and uh, Jude's day, they didn't have television and radio where they come in all the time. Most Christian TV, in my humble opinion, is not Christian. It's, it's a derivative, some worse than others. You're looking at me like, I can't believe you said that. But it's true. It, 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 I, I listen to some of them. I listen to what they say. And then I look at my Bible, and I cannot find what they said in my Bible. Amen. I'm going to leave that there. Their aim is to be accepted into the fold. Once they're accepted, they bring in others just like them, and they infiltrate that church. Soon they gain positions of authority as teachers, administrators, pastors. By the time the church at large wakes up, the damage has already been done. The infiltration, the leavening of this false teaching has now leavened the whole lump. A false message has made its way through the infrastructure of the church at large, and now there is false leaven in the church that began as a teaching that somebody dispensed to some body of believers and it spread. Jesus said a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He told the disciples, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. It will leaven you. It will, it will spread throughout your whole life if you let it. The leaven of false teaching does the same thing. I will tell you, beware of the leaven of false teachers who are on, in Christian bookstores, on Christian TV, on Christian radio, not me. I try my best to stay with the word. You know that. Amen. By God's grace, I am what I am. But I'm telling you, false teaching is everywhere out there. Hello, church. Yes. And then he describes their character. He says, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation? Ungodly men. Ungodly here doesn't mean backslidden. It doesn't mean irreligious. 
It means they deliberately do things that God has forbidden. They have zero reverence for the sacred things of God. They're devoid of the fear of God. They have deliberately rejected the truth. That's what he means by ungodly. Now, I want to tell you, I was talking to my two accountability partners yesterday. We had a meeting. We just got together for lunch, and we were talking about how people these days treat the church. I'm talking about the church building like it's just another building, like it's a mall. Now, not you. I'm not, we're not talking about you. I'm just saying, as a pastor, I can tell you that, that look at all the shootings that happen in churches now. Look at the violence and the way people have lost a sense of the sacred. What is, it, what is connected to God? What, what God has established. When you begin to lose that sense of the sacred, then right behind that loss of the sense of the sacred is the loss of honor. I honor what I consider sacred. When I lose my sense of Okay, this is not just any building, but it's where God's people meet. So, so I see it differently than I do walking around in a mall. Okay, presence of God is here. People are praying here. It's not the building, it's what goes on in the building. It, and, and so it's sacred, but there's a loss today. Our culture has lost, I'm going to say almost entirely, a sense of the sacred. And so now uh, we don't honor authority. We don't honor authority. Anybody can be cussed out. Can I get real tonight? Anybody can be cussed out, cursed, every horrible thing said to them when when they are in a position of authority, when they're in a position that, that God says all authority is from God and yet people will treat them like you would not treat a demon? That, that's the loss of the sacred and the loss of honor. And, they, and they're both lost together. They, they, they're lost hand in hand. That's the ungodly. That's the ungodly. That's what ungodly people do. Ungodly have lost touch with God. And, and blessed is the person. Blessed is the person who still knows to honor authority and honor what is sacred and honor the things of God. I'm going to have to stop. No, I'm looking at the time. Okay, I'm going to go four more minutes. Okay. Are you all okay going four more minutes? Okay. Um, Now, look what they do. So... They're ungodly, but they're also unholy. Jude says, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. Now, that's a sexual term. Lewdness means excess, lack of moderation, absence of restraint. Uh, It's usually a sexual term. It's not exclusively a sexual term, but it's usually a sexual term. For instance, Peter uses the very same word, Greek word, we translate into lewdness, to point to the filthy lifestyles of the people of Sodom. You can read the verse in 2 Peter 2, 7. So here's what they do. These false teachers use God's grace as a license to sin. They literally turn God's grace into something entirely different. Look, he says they turn the grace of our God. They exchange it. They change it. They skew it. They make it something different from what it originally was and is. Uh, They pervert the gospel of grace that should lead believers into holy living into an excuse for indulging the flesh. Here's what they say. Since we're now forgiven by grace, we can now live the way we want. We call that sloppy agape, greasy grace. (laughs) Sloppy agape, greasy grace. Okay? Since we're forgiven and since we're recipients of grace and we're in right standing with God, then we can do whatever we want. Now, you might say, well, wow, that may have been back then, but not around now. Oh, yes, it is. Let me give you one example. One of these types of false teachings prevalent today is called universalism. Universalism teaches that Jesus died for the whole world on the cross 
Hence, the whole world is automatically saved. No matter how you're living, everybody is going to go to heaven because Jesus died on the cross. Right next to Moses will be Jack the Ripper. Nobody, according to the universalist, will be judged. Nobody will go to hell because Christ's blood has covered it all. And they pull one verse out of the Bible where it says that Christ died for the sins of the world. I believe it's in Ephesians and Paul wrote it. Christ died for the sins of the world. They, they take that and they say, see there? He died for the sins of the world, so the sins of all the world are now forgiven. That's universalism. Now you may say, Pastor Jeff, that's crazy. Nobody's going to believe that. Let me tell you something. I know powerful preachers, pastors, and Christians who swallow this hook, line, and sinker. They have lost their church. They've lost their ministry. And now they're adrift in an ocean of confusion. Nobody will have them. They can't speak anywhere. Nobody wants them because they have embraced this universalism. This is what Jude is warning about. False teaching. False teaching. Well, I can finish. Hallelujah. I didn't know I was this far along. Finally, Jude says these false teachers are not only ungodly and unholy, they're also unruly. They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Ouch. That's the big one. These apostates deny the authority of the living God, and they openly deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And there are also those that say they believe, but in their lifestyles, they totally deny that they believe. They got all the good talk. They they can talk the good talk, but they're not walking a good walk. See, if you're really his, then you're going to walk it. Amen? Amen. If you're really his, you're going to walk it. I didn't say perfectly, but I said sincerely. You're going to sincerely want to please the Lord. If you're really his, you're going to want to please the Lord. You're going to want to walk it. You're going to want to live it as he told us to live it. It's a holy desire that he gives you as a newborn child of God. Now, those first verses are the plan we find in Jude. Next week, we're going to look at the plot. Let's stand up together, can we? How many of you can say, boy, I'm glad I came to church tonight, I think. (laughs) I know, I know. Amen. Let's lift holy hands to the Lord Jesus. Lord, we just thank you right now that you gave us this precious word. Lord, to warn us to avoid false teachers, false teaching, to learn to recognize it and shun it, to be sanctified, set apart to you, to honor you and honor what is sacred to be godly and not ungodly, sanctified and not unsanctified, redeemed and not unredeemed. And Lord, we pray that as we take in this word and grow from this good word, that you will help us to be more effective and more influential in this dark and dying and desperate culture in which we find ourselves. In Jesus' name.